podcast is brought to you by Calvin Harrison, the DJ responsible for our intro music. At .005 cents per stream, he's well on his way to that gently used 2004 Volkswagen Jetta he's had his eye on. Go get him, Calvin! Welcome to the Justin News Podcast. My name is Justin Cross, and today my guest joining me, friend of the podcast, he, uh, he's a writer for GQ, and he's a, uh, I don't want to say retired lawyer, but he's not practicing law, so don't hit him up for your wills, people. Go to LegalZoom if you're going to do that, okay? Uh, Jay Willis, thanks for being my guest. Yeah, man, thank you for having me, as always. Um, I am pumped to talk to you, because even though you don't practice law right now, uh, or, or anymore, uh, you are my go-to, one of my go-to experts when it comes to figuring out what the hell is going on with the Mueller report and, and general legal types of stuff going on in the political world. So um, I've got to ask first off, like, did you, did you read the full re- Mueller report? It's been about a week now. Have you been able to, to digest it in full? I would not say I have read all 448 pages of the Mueller report. Um, It's hard for me to imagine that there's a bunch of people who really sat down and read it cover to cover before, you know, tweeting out their favorite excerpts. Yeah. Um, But but I've had to tackle most of it at this point. Feel like my feel like I got a pretty good working knowledge. If if somebody was was like, you know what, I followed the whole thing for the last two years. Should I should I dive in? Should I read? Should I try to read the whole thing, or maybe just the Cliff Notes version? What do you What do you tell them? Well, definitely. First of all, don't read the Cliff Notes version from Twitter. Second of all, do read the Cliff Notes version from GQ.com, which has great coverage of this story. Um, I like that. I like that plug right there. That's a good plug. Yeah, yeah. That's what we call an organic plug. Uh, <laughs> But uh, in seriousness, the, the executive summaries of the two parts of the Mueller report should do the trick for folks. They're three or four pages apiece, um, and they are the summaries that Mueller's team – it sounds like Mueller's team included expecting that Attorney General Barr would sort of release those as part of his, his early review. Uh, and as, as I'm sure we'll get into later, it turns out that the attorney general did a little more of his own editorializing than perhaps the special counsel team expected. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, is that normal for an attorney general just to, like, come in and, like, you know, basically give his opinion? Is that, I mean, is that protocol? <laughs> so there's not really a clear protocol here, but the... Bill Barr's, the attorney general's behavior here, in my view, was extremely inappropriate. And it, I, I hate to say that, you know, something or someone adjacent to the Trump administration surprised me. But part of the sort of the pitch for confirming uh, Bill Barr to the position is that he is an institutionalist, that he's been around the Department of Justice for a long time, that he served as attorney general uh, under George H.W. Bush and that he would, he would protect the integrity of the office, whatever, uh, whatever was going on in the White House. And in, the, in both his summary of the, of the report, which he released about three weeks before its release, uh, and then in a press conference the morning of the actual report's release, he really kind of went full naga in a way that I was, 
not expecting. Um, at one point during his press conference, uh, he characterized the president as frustrated in explaining why uh, why the president took actions that would have obstructed justice, which, as far as I know, frustration is generally not like uh, an excuse for illegal behavior. Uh, yeah, not, not a great showing by our attorney general, I would say. So, so no, no exact protocol, but basically being the president's masseuse is not generally, slash therapist, is not the general role of an AG. Well, so, so Ken Starr is sort of the last analog to uh, Robert Mueller and the special counsel's investigation. But the Starr report, uh, that under President Clinton, that occurred under an, an independent counsel statute. And under that statute, Starr was empowered to make an impeachment referral directly to Congress, which he did. Um, the special counsel, what Robert Mueller is, is a little bit different. And yes, the fact that independent counsel and special counsel are different things is inane and just one of the, the many bright spots of living in, a, living in a government overrun by legalese. But a special counsel cannot uh, make an, a, a direct impeachment referral. Uh, they have to just deliver a report to the attorney general. So Bill Barr was sort of within his powers to editorialize it, whether or not you think that – whether you think that was something in which he showed integrity, that's a different matter. Yeah, I, I'm going to go no integrity there. But I, I – that that is interesting that he – because that's what a lot of this seems to boil down to when it comes to like um, – and we'll, I want to get to just the general – you know, what this was about, what this, this is report. So that, that leads perfectly into, and I will say this though. One of the things I will give bar is that a four page bar report. I will read that, that I can handle. No, totally. Absolutely. Uh, He he definitely had millennial attention spans in mind and I respect that. (laughs) Especially because it's editorialized. So it's just, you know, it's one guy's opinion, you know. That that's always more fun than just having to, you know, understand legal terminology. Yeah, don't make me read the facts. Let me read the take. <laughs> you guys should get him to write for GQ at some point. <laughs> yeah, we'll see if he's uh, we'll see if he's got any room in his schedule for freelance. <laughs> Today's podcast is brought to you by the Indianapolis Colts home to the NFL's most boring uniforms. They might as well be called the Indianapolis Mitch McConnells. Incredibly white, and if you look at them for more than five seconds, you may fall asleep. So let's get to, let's get to the collusion, conspiracy, collusion slash conspiracy and obstruction, because those are the two main aspects of what Mueller was looking at, right? And I guess to just paint that picture a little bit for folks, what are the definitions? And I know, I know, like, but what are you, like, your, what's, like, like, a quick definition for somebody who doesn't know this? Like, what is collusion slash conspiracy in this case? And what is obstruction? What do those actually mean? So collusion is a really vague and nebulous term that sort of means whatever the speaker wants it to mean. Uh, which is which is why it's become weaponized and also basically useless these days. Uh, what Mueller concluded was that there was no criminal conspiracy as between members of the Trump campaign and uh, 
you know, Russian intelligence or military officials, what have you, that they did not sit down together or talk to one another and decide to commit a crime. Uh, what the Mueller report does detail in its first section is a lot of people associated with the Trump campaign trying really, really hard to do crimes, to do things that <laughs> would const- that would constitute crimes. Uh, they didn't succeed. Um, I don't know how... <laughs> I don't know how encouraged I am by that result, and I don't know if if failing to commit crimes because of your own ignorance or incompetence, I don't know if that should give rise to exoneration. <laughs> um, and I, I think that's kind of a hard thing for a lot of people to grapple with right now because, again, Mueller did conclude that there is no criminal conspiracy, but if you read the report, these people, these people who did not conspire are also bad people who did things that are not patriotic. And that's sort of a tension that there's no easy way to resolve. Do you think that Mueller was, was purposely vague, I guess, uh, about his conclusions on obstruction because he was trying to say, I mean, he was basically saying, this is not my job to, to charge the president with a crime, and so therefore... Because I think there's a line or two in there that I even read that said, you know, here's basically it, it almost was teeing it up for Congress to be like, you guys can go after this. Uh, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. Like, I I mean, just because Robert Mueller is like, a, from all accounts, he's just a justice lawyer robot who is like does his job and then goes home and goes to bed at 8 p.m. I was going to say, know I, I don't know if that guy's human from what I understand. Like, he seems like... Like, first of all, the, the chiseled jaw, it's very defined. But he just seems, yeah, like you said, he seems robotic. Yeah, it, it, it's one thing that's sort of remarkable to me is how, like, somehow there has been, there's just been a remarkable dearth of people taking cell phone videos of Robert Mueller, like, in the grocery store <laughs> or walking down the street. Like, like he, he's basically invisible, and he's been really good <laughs> at not providing sort of any sort of extracurricular comment. And I think it was this past Sunday, uh, a reporter, I believe, for CNN tracked him down and, like, did his due diligence of, like, putting the microphone in Robert Mueller's face as Robert Mueller was coming to or leaving church or something. And all <laughs> I think Mueller gave him, like, one no comment, which is maybe the most – public words I've heard from him in two years and then just like went about his business of getting in the car. I think that was just, that was actually just the, that was like actually a doctor just verifying that Mueller was alive and a real person. Yeah. Like we got proof of life here. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it is true though. He's, he's like, he reminds me of like, um, like Dave Chappelle, like a Dave Chappelle comedy show, like no cell phones allowed, you know, like he's just, <laughs> You never know if he's just working out material or if it's something he's actually going to go public with. You have no idea. I don't know. Yeah, one other detail I'll share that always comes up in profiles of him is that he he always wears white dress shirts and apparently like makes has a long history of making fun of subordinates or coworkers who wear who like would dare to wear blue dress shirts or god help them pinstripes like this always this anecdote always comes up that he he calls people out for wearing something other than like the classic g-man outfit but i i digress so this this robot man um (laughs) i i really don't think he wrote this report like trying to trying to 
cause Congress to draw one conclusion or the other. I really think he just wanted to lay out the evidence as best he could and sort of let Congress make that decision. And again, like the special counsel can't make a, an impeachment referral. Um, I just think he, he he really walked up to the line. Um, he mentioned several times that like Congress is the one who has sort of the authority to act as an inherent check on abuses of presidential power. Um, that's not a referral, but it sounds like a referral using longer and fancy words to me. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly what it sounds like. I mean, <laughs> like, it's it's as if, like you said, he just, they're just, just really shitty at committing crimes. Yeah, like, I'm supposed to be encouraged by this result? I don't know. It kind of freaks me out, but, you know, your mileage may vary. <laughs> so, so... A few more things. I want to get to like where this goes. I mean, first of all, like we should have. I should have said this in the beginning, but it was an unredacted or it was a redacted report. So, do you think that we're going to see the full report and and maybe you know, like where where they're not just pages that look like an ultrasound? (laughs) Um, I mean, it's really hard to say. So certainly. Uh, the House Judiciary Committee, uh, led by Jerry Nadler, I believe, has already issued a subpoena for the unredacted report. Um, but a lot of the redactions have to do with uh, with their pertinence to ongoing criminal matters, that, that releasing that information right now would jeopardize an existing uh, potential criminal prosecution. And to me, kind of the most surprising takeaway from the Mueller report, the thing that you know made my eyebrows go up, is it says that Mueller made 14 criminal referrals, uh, only two of which are publicly known right now. So there's a dozen criminal investigations out there that that if there's information in this report that would jeopardize those, uh, that that's the reason for the redaction. So until we find out about those or until they're resolved, um, that kind of information, I think, is just not going to come out. I mean, I, I, I got to ask you this, just... Is there anything you think? Are are there any investigations that you think that that you have any idea as to what they may be, uh, just based on other context clues within the report, uh, or, or or things around this case? I mean, this isn't this isn't anything groundbreaking, but I think certainly uh, there's information there probably related to the prosecution of Carter Page, uh, and then also. Uh, Julian Assange, which came out just a couple days, um, a day or two before the uh, before the Mueller report's announcement, um, that uh, that may have factored into some of the redactions as well. And you think a lot of this has been maybe fished out to like the Southern District or maybe like a DC court? Is that kind of where those things seem to go? Yeah, Southern District, I would think, is most likely and. Again, it's important to remember that the Southern District is is not constrained in the same way that an entity like the Special Counsel's Office is. Um, so they will have, they would have, in theory, sort of fewer handcuffs on on their investigation going forward. God, I feel like the Southern District is just like, like if you're if you're a lawyer and you need a job, like and you're worth your salt, like go to the Southern because they just I feel like they handle they've got Avenatti now. In his stuff, like the the Southern District, they're very busy people. 
Southern District is big time, man. That's a big place to get a job as a lawyer. The big thing about it is, um, like, that's where prosecution of big financial crimes is. So uh, to the extent that you're wondering if Billions is a documentary, uh, the answer is yes. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, that's why those are such plum jobs. Financial crimes, which I feel like that may be uh, – I don't know. I feel like maybe I'm – I don't know what I'm talking about here, but it, it seems like that could be something within one of these 12 unknown investigations possibly. Could be related. I agree. Um, <laughs> you know – Meetings over in the seashells and back channels and uh, you know buying cash from Russian oligarchs, buying properties and cash from Rus- Russian oligarchs. I feel like that that could go somewhere, but could go somewhere. Today's podcast is brought to you by Jeff Sessions. Ugh, I know it was wasn't our first choice but uh he he gave us a lot of money and he was really really sweaty um yeah so we took it jeff sessions from what we know uh i'm just curious like what was you you mentioned sort of the like it seems like this shitty like really bungled kind of cover up that they're doing or, or trying to, you know, trying to commit crimes but not being successful at it. But what's another takeaway or two that you got from what you've read of the, the redacted Mueller report so far? Uh, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but the big thing for me is, is how they, they, and when I say they, I'm here, I'm primarily referring to the president's eldest, dumbest son, Donald Trump Jr. Oh, yeah. uh, he was offered, and we already knew this from the emails, but he was offered um, uh, information derogatory to Hillary Clinton that would help his father's presidential campaign. And he was told it's part of the Russian government's support for President Trump. Like all of that information is information that he had. And what he decided to do is not not report it to, to the FBI. Um, he decided to take the meeting. Now, as it turned out, the meeting turned out to be a crock of shit. And basically, this lawyer, it sounds like, was mostly wanting to lobby him about sanctions on Russia if the elder Donald Trump should become president. Uh, so it kind of fizzled out. Um, and, you know, of course, Donald Trump Jr. <laughs> took the opportunity to say that uh, that he had been cleared and that he told us he would be cleared all along. Um, but the upshot to me is a little more grim that he saw no problem with accepting this help. And I think Rudy Giuliani even said in the days after the Mueller report's release that, you know, there's, it's not a crime to, to, to be helped by a, to be helped by a foreign government. And personally, I just think that sends a really bad precedent for uh, for future presidential elections like the one we've got coming up. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems like, again, it gets into that very gray area of collusion. And it's almost like at some point, uh, I don't know if we need to totally rewrite the rules here, but I feel like we need to get some clarification as to what the fuck the rules are. Because Yeah, the, the wider the gray area, the better it is for this president. That's for sure. And I think that that's... Essentially, I think if you 
it's probably just like an autobiography title, but you know, if not the art of the deal, the the you know the gray area that Donald Trump lives in, because I feel like that's what he's done his entire life is just live in a very the gray area. expanse. <laughs> I'm just workshopping here. Just I was gonna say, I, mean, I think we found a, a podcast title there. <laughs> um, and I'm gonna ask you. We we got the NFL draft coming up. I know you're a big uh, Seahawks fan. I'm gonna ask you that in a second, but a couple more things, politics and Mueller related. Um, Please. I got to ask you about the obstruction stuff. I mean, is that something that, you know, is it just dead in the water if Congress doesn't move to impeach Trump? Or is that something that maybe within those 12 other charges or, or outside of it that uh, the Southern District or some other court can actually go after Trump when he leaves office? Yeah, I think the big distinction that you've got to draw there is that Congress doesn't uh, – so obstruction of justice is a crime, but in order to impeach, Congress doesn't have to prove a crime in the same way that a prosecutor in court would have to prove a crime. The Congress, the congressional standard, the constitutional standard is that Congress can impeach for high crimes and misdemeanors, which is sort of a, a nebulous phrase that refers to general misconduct from an elected officials that – we do not want to tolerate in elected officials. Mm-hmm. So I think sort of the, the consternation around what Congress is going to do next stems from the fact that right now, the because Trump is held to a higher standard as an elected official than he will be as a private citizen, uh, Congress has a little more leeway if it should choose to initiate impeachment proceedings than a prosecutor would, say, in the Southern District or in any other jurisdiction. If you could rank Trump's AGs in order of preference, personal preference, uh, we've got Jeff Sessions, Matthew Whitaker, and now William Bill Barr. Uh, is, this my, is this my preference to, like, hang out with them? <laughs> um, I guess preference to be AG overall, oh. not just the Trump stuff. But, yeah... You can throw in hanging out, you know, having a beer. I can, as a I can editorialize a little bit. Oh, of course. I mean, the, yeah. we are talking about Trump AG, AGs, of course. <laughs> okay, <laughs> oh, it's, so. It's very natural. So my top pick um, in a sentence I never thought I would say uh, is Jeff Sessions because he is like a vile, a vile bigot and xenophobe, um, but also <laughs> w- very weirdly with respect to the uh, – with respect to the Russia investigation, a bunch of times he did what might be termed the right thing, at least in sort of Trump context, Trump-adjusted terms. Mm-hmm. It was his recusal, um, it was his decision to recuse himself that allowed Mueller to, uh, that allowed Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein to appoint Mueller. And uh, again, as compared to his competition, I got to respect that. Uh, my Let's see. My second choice. Oh, my second choice has got to be the big dick toilet guy. Um, oh, Matthew. Because yeah. yeah, he just seems like kind of a like kind of a doofus who who <laughs> waltzed into that position after doing a bunch of uh, sort of a bunch of auditioning on Fox News. Mm-hmm. And look, he is. He is our first attorney general, as far as I understand, to appear in an online marketing video for a better type of razor blade. And I just feel like that guy is 
Like he's gonna, he's always going to talk about his brief tenure of attorney general in a way that you're just like, man, you're a weirdo, but that's a hell of a story. And I was entertained <laughs> for having listened to it. Oh man. Um, I, I just, I just, and, well, you work out too. So you mentioned getting a drink, but I think he's also, he's maybe not a terrible guy to like, you know, say, Hey, and like share a quick story at the gym with. Oh yeah. He's, he's definitely like the attorney general who is closest spiritually to a high school football strength coach. <laughs> um, uh, and then my last one is my man, Bill Barr again, because this person was presented to the American people as an institutionalist, uh, who they could count on to preserve the rule of law. And it sure seems like he threw that right out the door and, really is doing exactly exactly what Trump wanted uh, when he hired him for the job. And I find that really shameful. Yeah. Yeah, he is the most, if it's possible, he seems to be the most Trumpian of all of them. Because he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't seem to necessarily have a, like a belief system one way or another. Yeah, like, I think it's important to notice that there's a pattern here that that all of these sort of respected Republican institutionalists who eventually agree to associate with, with Trump, um, they all end up looking like him, acting like him, doing the things uh, that he would want from them. He's like a cult leader. He's like, he's like Jim Jones or David Koresh. He just, he's going to, I wonder if you walk in the White House and like your oath is to drink a, like a tub of Kool-Aid or something like that. It's like Trump juice, you know? It feels like we would have heard about that by now, but can't rule uh, can't rule out the communal vat of Kool Aid. <laughs> On a scale of one to five, five being the closest, how would you rate the proximity of Bob Barr's four-page recap to the actual findings of the report? So it was it was a one. Um, it was <laughs> not similar, but I think there's you brought up something there that I think is really important for us to discuss is. You called him Bob Barr, and it's Bill. It's Bill Barr. Oh, but I. I but I do this. But here's the thing: I do this all the time, because in my head, I just transpose the first and last names of Bill Barr and Bob Mueller. Mm. And personally, I think that Bill Mueller makes more sense as a name, <laughs> and Bob Barr makes more sense as a name than what they actually are. That's so like, while, while I concede, and, and I don't really have a good explanation for that, I think Bill Mueller was a baseball player for a while, which mm-hmm. might be why that's in my head. I concede that this would be super confusing, given, you know, the state of current events, but, you know, I think once everything has calmed down a little bit, once sort of the dust has settled, uh, I think they should look into, into sort of adopting these... Uh, adopting what should be their names. And if they want to do some trades, I think that would be a good choice. Absolutely. I know I'm not going to ask you about 2020 president, presidential candidates yet. They're, they're, um, there's a growing number of them, as you may know. Um, but I do want to ask, like, what do you think the overall message should be? Like, how much We talked a lot about the Mueller report. I'm just wondering how much of that, maybe not the Mueller report, but just... Uh, corruption and how much should that factor into the message of democrats both um at the presidential level and uh on the congressional level and in in, uh, lower offices um and and just like what in general do you think these uh these folks should be running on uh so first like addressing the issue of impeachment which is seemingly all that 
Democratic types can fight about on Twitter right now. Uh, it is true that if Democrats were to impeach, which they can do with a majority vote in the House, so if they can get all the Democrats stick together, they can to stick together, they can do it. Um, if Democrats impeach, there will be a trial in the Senate over which Chief Justice John Roberts will preside. It will be a bizarre spectacle, and there is no chance of the Republican cons- uh, excuse me the Republican controlled Senate convicting him. Uh, you've got to get two thirds of them, which means that you would have to have let me do some math. 47 Democrats, so 16, 16 Republican defections, like you're not going to get one. Uh, <laughs> President Trump will not be convicted in the Senate. Now, there are sort of two schools of thought there. The first is if it's not going to be if he's not going to be removed from office, why would we sort of go through the rigmarole of impeaching him and seeing that uh, seeing him be declared innocent, exonerated in the Senate, and then he's going to celebrate that all through 2020. Why would we do that? Uh, The flip side of that perspective, which I'm a little more sympathetic to, although, again, I think both sides are fair, is that the point of impeachment isn't necessarily to remove the president from office. No president who has ever been impeached, there have only been two, no president who has ever who has been impeached has actually been removed from office. It's it's a way of repudiating misbehavior in the White House that is stronger than censure. It is the strongest thing that the Constitution empowers Congress to do to a president. And I think there's value in sending that message. And if Democrats think that he should be impeached, there's value in doing that. Uh, even if it's politically not something that is going to result in them getting their way and getting him out of the White House. Do you think that just on the trail, as far as messaging goes, should, regardless of impeachment proceedings going through or not, um, do you think that that this should be much of an issue? Let's just focus on the presidential candidates. Should that be uh, something like, what, what's the first thing that, that, uh, Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg or Beto O'Rourke or Joe Biden uh, should talk about Elizabeth Warren. Like, what should they? What should be the first Bernie Sanders? What, what should they say when they're on the campaign trail if they were to get the nomination? Uh, that would resonate the most with the general electorate. It's healthcare. It's it, it is not it is not anything Mueller related. It is healthcare. It is. Uh, it is the tax reform bill, a $1.5 trillion transfer of money from people who are not fabulously rich to people who are fabulously rich. Those are the issues that candidates should be talking about on the campaign trail. And the Republican Party still wants to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And if they, if they have Congress again, if they have Congress, the Senate, the White House, they'll certainly try it. And that is something... That is what candidates out there should be focused on. The Republican Party is still trying to take away health care, and Democrats are still the ones who are trying to who are trying to keep it and who are trying to make it better. To the extent that the Mueller report comes up on the campaign trail, I think you could talk about it in the context of the president's corruption, and you can point to any example uh, that you choose for that. Uh, his his hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. Uh, his potential violations of the emoluments clause. 
uh, his <laughs> his courting apparently of Mar-a-Lago members, uh, <laughs> hitting hitting them up for uh, for policy advice when he runs into them in the hallway. Uh, there are any number of things that you can point out as evidence that Trump is in this for himself. Um, but I don't think that any Democrats out there, certainly not presidential candidates, uh, should be focused on impeachment. Um, also, if any Democrat wins the White House, uh, the whole impeachment thing will kind of be moot. So it's maybe not something that they should spend a bunch of their energy on. Yeah, I, I guess I fall into the camp of of, uh, of, of being able to – I think – the Democrats should, like Jerry Nadler, like spend time trying to get his tax returns. Try to, you know, like the stuff that's in the report that you can go after, go after it to a certain extent. I don't know if impeachment's really the right thing, though. I think you can almost piecemeal and make him look worse. And I don't mean make him look worse in a, well, let's just go after him to make him look worse and try to be a dick about it. But, like, there's stuff out there, and I feel like a piecemeal strategy versus trying to, like, go after the whole impeachment is a it, it just seems to make more sense it seems to be more logical um and logistically practical but uh i think politically it, it may hold water more than if they were to try to go for the, go for it and then like you said it becomes a whole charade and and then he wins and then gloats about it um, yeah it's, it's it's definitely an argument i'm sympathetic to i think at minimum what democrats should not be doing is foreclosing the possibility of impeachment because as soon as they do that, uh, Trump has all the power. You can investigate him all you want, but once impeachment, impeachment is sort of the big stick that House Democrats have in their arsenal, and as they conduct their investigations, they should they should keep it and and leave the possibility of deploying it if they find something in their investig if they don't want to impeach, but they find something later that they think sort of pushes it over the edge. Leave the cloud. Leave the cloud hanging there. Don't don't go Steny Hoyer on, on us. And five yeah, seconds after the Mueller report comes out, be like, no. I don't think L- little quick, thing. Steny. Little quick. Today's podcast is brought to you by Lil OG Binko, the illest rapper on SoundCloud. Dizzy Dope single dropping this Friday like flames. Stay woke, fam. Literally have no idea what that means. Uh, hey, this guy's check also bounced. It was Wells Fargo with a Z in Wells. Uh, anyway, uh, peep it fresh, kids. Lil OG Binko. You wrote an article very recently here uh, in GQ entitled, The Trump Administration is Designing the 2020 Census to Make Immigrants Invisible. Tell me about that. So the census, the proposed change to the 2020 census questionnaire would ask respondents uh, if they're citizens of the United States. Uh, I believe that question has not been included on the census since 1950. And the reason for that is experts told the Census Bureau that if you ask that question, people who are not citizens, which includes both legal permanent residents and undocumented people, uh, but especially undocumented people, obviously, 
are going to be less inclined to participate in the census at all because they're going to be fearful that by giving that information, the government will use it to to potentially detain and deport them. Uh, the reason this is so dangerous is because the purpose of the census is not to gather information for law enforcement officials. Uh, it is to just figure out who's actually living here, who's going to work here, who's going to school here, who lives in our communities. And that's used to allocate federal funding and it's used to determine congressional apportionment. So the danger is by deterring non-citizens, by deterring undocumented people from filling out their census forms, you're going to uh, dilute the political power of areas in which those people live and because it looks like fewer people live there, there's going to be fewer federal resources apportioned to that area. Uh, I don't think that, I don't actually think that the Trump administration is going to use census data to engage in mass arrests and deportations. But what adding this seemingly innocuous question to the census does is it basically treats them, it makes it so that in the eyes of the government, they are not there. And that's a big, that's a, that's a danger not only to undocumented people, um, but it, it affects the rights of everyone else who lives in that community too. Uh, I am so happy you wrote this article because I think it's, you know, something that with all of the stuff that's out there about how uh, the Mueller report and everything we, we discussed, <laughs> um, Sometimes you stories like this one need to be there needs to be a light on these because this is like you said this is a huge fucking deal and it can you know it's one of those things where it can really impact a lot of people um, and and shape how our politics goes um, and I have to say I, I my favorite part was when you quoted uh, Samuel Alito uh, Judge Justice Samuel Alito and you, I think you, the quote was I don't think you have to be, have to be much of a statistician to wonder about the legitimacy of concluding that there is going to be a 5.1% lower response rate because of this one factor, said Justice Samuel Alito, who is indeed not a statistician. <laughs> I just, I enjoyed yeah, I mean, that. Yeah, you've got, you've got Census Bureau experts estimating, and this isn't, there isn't a consensus around this, but some of them estimate that, uh, that including the citizens, citizenship question could lead to an, an undercount of 5%. And for, for Justice Alito, who is a, obviously a very smart dude, to just be, get up there and basically say, nah, <laughs> like <laughs> that, was a, that was a strange exchange to me. Yeah. Well, uh, I appreciate you uh, just as a general, th it's a great article and it's something that uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to talk to you about. Thanks, man. Yeah. Um, and, and lastly, Definitely, without doubt, the most uh, inconsequential thing we've discussed. But uh, I still feel like it's it's going to dominate my weekend to some level. As a hardcore Jacksonville Jaguars fan, this is the the NFL draft is our Super Bowl. Um, as somebody who supports the Seahawks, and you guys have actually won a Super Bowl and been there multiple times, I got to ask you: Who do you think you guys are going to draft with your not one but two first round draft picks? Uh, I have kind of an unconventional, sort of an unconventional approach to the draft. Uh, I understand that the Seahawks have 
quote-unquote draft needs. They could use help on the defensive line. They could perpetually use help on the offensive line uh, because Russell Wilson is always running for his life, it seems. (laughs) Um, But with these two first-round draft picks, I just – I don't think there's any way we should pass – we should pass up the chance to take two true game-changing players. So I think with my first pick, uh, I'm drafting Earl Thomas, (laughs) who I understand technically – has signed a free agency contract with the Baltimore Ravens, but <laughs> but I just want to sort of leave the invitation open, and I think <laughs> spending a first-round draft pick on him would be a good way of letting him know that, you know, we still care and we're still thinking about him. <laughs> uh, and then with our second pick, uh, which we just acquired while getting rid of Frank Clark, uh, I think we should draft Marshawn Lynch, uh, who is now a free agent, uh, and there is no Seahawk I want more desperately back in my life uh, than Marshawn Lynch. Oh, man. You know, I didn't know you were going to go this route, because if so, we would have just given you Blake Bortles. You guys could have just <laughs> had him. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to trade We don't have to trade us any picks. You know, we don't even want one of those, like, uh, what are they, like, compensatory picks that you get, like, that aren't even, you know. I, we didn't want an undrafted free agent. None of that. You can just have him. I like the spirit of cooperation we're talking about, but I fear that sort of in the way that you're envisioning it, that there's no way I can refuse. Uh, <laughs> and in this case, I would, I would refuse. <laughs> like politely, politely, but like I'm good. <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, good luck to your Seahawks tomorrow. Um, and, uh, and Jay, thanks so much for being my guest again on uh, the Just News Podcast. Thanks for talking Mueller. Talking a little 2020 messaging. Um, uh, of course, this ridiculous um, census, uh, 2020 census uh, agenda that Wilbur Ross apparently woke up from his latest meeting to, to push. Um, <laughs> thanks again for being on the show. Yeah, man. It, it's a lot of fun. Let's, uh, let's sort of put a pin in that, uh, that Bob Barr, Bill, Bill Mueller proposal, and we'll see if we can circle back to it once they're ready. Keep it fresh, kids. Lil OG Binko.